Church, it's so great to be with you. My name is Jeremy, lead pastor here. And about a month ago, I shared an illustration uh, about LaCroix, the, the drink. And uh, never in my wildest imagination would I think that that was the one thing I've said that most connected me with you guys. Uh, but you guys have really, it's been a lot of conversations about LaCroix since then. Uh, and I, I didn't anticipate that with this illustration. Uh, but a number of you sent me something this week that I felt like I had to share with you. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the news, there was a major article uh, posted this week, said this, uh, LaCroix faces lawsuit for allegedly including cockroach insecticide in its sparkling water. Now, I don't want to say I'm a prophet, but feel like I tried to warn you guys. I tried to tell you something wasn't right way before it came out, and there's the proof. Uh, hey, we're so glad you're here today. Uh, glad that you're a part of this. Uh, we are a church about making uh, the gospel good news by giving ourselves to it. And, and so uh, that's what we've been about. That's what we've been uh, talking about. And I just want to let you know before we begin, uh, we had an opportunity to do that. And, you know, I know a number of you are like, well, that's a great slogan. Are we actually going to be that church? Are we going to do that? And so uh, just to let you know, like, that is the church we want to be. Uh, there's been a number of disasters going on in the world right now. You may have been aware of. We've been praying for them here. But uh, obviously what's going on on the East Coast in our own country and in Indonesia. And, uh, and so part of us as a church is going, how do we just naturally live out our mission statement uh, when there's needs in the world? How do we give ourselves to make the gospel good news for others? And so I want you to know uh, that we as a church were able to give $20,000 uh, to both of those between the two. And so 10000 to Hurricane in Florence, 10,000 to uh, the typhoon in uh, Indonesia. And again, if you are uh, a regular part of this with us, you're part of the family and you give, uh, that's where some of your money's going. And so if you're like, hey, what is this church about? Um, that's just us living out what we feel like we're, we're called to live out. Uh, now again, if you're like, oh, I want to go above and beyond that, uh, we've been partnering with an organization called Convoy of Hope uh, with, with both of those. And that's how we felt like uh, that's a Christian organization. We could uh, partner with them. They're on the ground doing incredible work there. Uh, I'd recommend them to you if you want to get more involved than that. But uh, just part of, you know, if you ever wonder, what does our money go to? That goes to things like this. And that's how we naturally live out this mission. And so I want to thank you for being a part of that with us. And uh, just to let you know, that's how we continue to practice uh, literally what we preach. Now today we're beginning a brand new series. Um, yeah, you can applaud that. Absolutely. Today we're beginning a brand new series called I Am. And we are going to look at uh, seven different things that Jesus said about himself. Now today there's all sorts of uh, talk about Jesus. Was he really this? Was he really that? What kind of uh, guy is he? Um, but it's interesting, what did Jesus say about himself? And like we have our own, you know, answer stuff. But what did he actually say? Uh, what did he think of himself? And he used some interesting images uh, that a lot of us really don't understand or we don't understand the context of it. And so we're going to dive into that. What was he meaning? How is he wanting us to understand him uh, in the different ways? And so uh, if you've got your journal, go ahead and get that out. And we're going to be in week one. Uh, you'll see this is a journal. That if you're new with us, uh, you keep this the whole series. And you bring this back with you. And each week is a spot to take notes in. And we'd encourage you to use this as a resource for your own study with God, for your 
your life group, uh, just whatever you want to do. But we encourage you to take notes and, and take advantage of that. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do. We're going to be in the book of John for the next six or seven weeks. Uh, and so we encourage you to do that. Today we're going to be in John chapter 9. Uh, so if you want to get your spot there, we'll be there in just a moment. And, and all of these different I am statements are found in the Gospel of John. So it's a way that John helps to introduce us to Jesus. And we're going to take uh, a little bit of time and unpack each of those. Now today's I am statement uh, is actually said twice by Jesus in the Gospel of John. So this is one to take note of. He says it multiple times. And, and it's in two different contexts. The first time actually appears in chapter 8, and I'll read it for you, and then we'll get to chapter 9. Uh, in chapter 8, you have uh, what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a Jewish festival at that time of the year, and, and it was a seven-day-long festival. And what they would do is they'd gather together, everyone would come together, and at night, uh, with the exception of the Sabbath, uh, at night they would gather together and they would light these golden lamps. And, and it was a remembrance of what God had done for them through their ancestors. In particular, if you go back to the Old Testament and the book of Exodus, you find God redeeming his people out of Egypt, leading them into the wilderness. And yet that you know, presented some challenges and God supernaturally showed up for them. And so in particular, when they were in the desert, they had no flashlights, no cell phone lights, no street lights. How do you, uh, you know, exist in the middle of complete darkness? And so God showed up in a pillar of fire. And so this fe the Feast of Tabernacles was how the, the Jews remembered that. And so you have generations later, they are looking back and going, remember what God did for us? Remember what God did for our ancestors? When we were in the dark, God was the light. And this is a whole uh, celebration about that. Now you can find some of this uh, back in Exodus 13. Uh, here's what this says in verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so you have this iconic image of God as one who is physically, tangibly with his people. Now imagine if you're in the desert, you're, you're with Everybody you know, you know, and, and it's pitch black and there is a pillar of fire that is the presence of God. Not something you'd forget uh, for a while. And you would pass it on like, hey, when we needed light, God was there for us. And God was the light and he was this pillar of fire. And so literally they would celebrate this, uh, this, this feast of tabernacles and Jesus was a part of this feast as well. And then toward the end of the feast, Jesus decides he's going to do some teaching on who he is. And in light of what they have just spent the last week celebrating, I want you to consider Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will uh, never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now in that context, it's incredibly profound what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, remember how you guys are all talking about your ancestors and what God did for your ancestors in this pillar of fire? They're like, yeah. And he said, I am that light. You can imagine them going, wait, wait, what? I am the light of the world. I, I am the, the one that will keep you in the darkness. Like, I am the light. I, I, will, I will navigate the darkness with you. And you can imagine them, you know, having a little bit of a watershed moment here. Like, wait. You think you're God? You're claiming you're the pillar of fire? You can imagine the audacious sound of this in the midst of what they have just been celebrating for the last week. And yet, if you were intrigued by Jesus, you're going, whoa, he thinks he's the same light? 
He thinks he's the light of the world, that we've been celebrating what God has done for us. It's a remarkable claim for Jesus to make. And if that was all he ever said about being the light of the world, that would be profound enough. We'd go, wow, Jesus thinks that he's the light that has always been the light, and he's always been with the people. That's amazing. But Jesus goes on to say the same idea again in the next chapter. So you go to chapter 9, and I want to read verse 1 together. So hopefully if you have a Bible, a physical Bible with you, uh, you can follow along, or a Bible app on a phone, I encourage you, we want to read this together. But I want you to see uh, this incredible story, uh, and this is going to be a totally different context that Jesus is going to say. He's already said it at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles after everyone is celebrating light. And then you get to this story, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, Jesus saw a blind man... From birth, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you may not understand that question. That was a debate in their time. They had no way to explain uh, birth defects. And so if someone wasn't fully whole, they, they thought it has to be the result of sin. Now, they didn't know. Was it the person's sin or was it their parents' sin passed down to the child? And this was a raging debate in those days. They had no way to explain why are some people born blind? Why is this happening to this person? Clearly, this is a sin issue. And they bring this to Jesus. Notice his response in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This would have been a very unusual answer. Like, wait, that's, that's not an option, Jesus. It's either his sin or his parents' sin. And, and, God, and Jesus goes, no, no, no. This is so that God's going to do something profound in your midst. And they're like, what are you talking about? He says, as long as it is day... We must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. I, this, this is what I love about Jesus. He could be like, all right, hey, dude, uh, you're healed. Like, go, you can see now. Let's, let's be done with it. No, Jesus is like, all right, everybody, gather around. <laughs> Spits on the ground. And you can imagine the blind guy's like, did he, did he just spit? Like, you know, he's going, guys, tell me. Tell me what's happening right now. And then they watch as Jesus bends down, gets this saliva mud. And then the guy's like, you know, you imagine him going, is he, is he walking over to me with that? Like, what's, what's going on right now? And then, bam, right on his face, everyone else is like, oh, ugh. Right in his eyes. You know, they're like, oh, man, this is weird. I mean, this is like, if you don't know Jesus, you're like, what on earth is he doing right now? This is super gross. And then Jesus says this, verse 7. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Whoa. That would be amazing. Now, you could end the story right there and go, isn't God amazing? Isn't Jesus amazing? He heals people. He brings them sight. Everybody's happy. And then everybody became a Christian. And they all believed in him. And it's just happy ever after. Except... If you keep reading, uh, which we don't have time for, but verses 9 through 34 uh, don't go well for this blind guy. Immediately, uh, people begin to ask him questions like, hey, were you really blind? Hey, can you really see? Hey, who is this Jesus guy? What did he say to you? What did he do? Who did he claim that he is? And this guy just gets bombarded with questions immediately following this healing from Jesus. And so you could say this guy gets plunged into the darkness immediately after experiencing the light. He experiences Jesus and you think, oh, this is going to be the greatest moment in his life. In a sense it is, but then immediately after, things go bad for him. You see, walking in the light doesn't remove 
the darkness around you. And you see this with this guy. He is in the light. He is experiencing the light of the world, Jesus. But it doesn't take away the darkness. In fact, it pushes him into the darkness. Had he not met Jesus that day, this would have been a normal day for him. He would have gone about his business. Nobody would have cared. But because he experienced the light, he gets pushed into the darkness. Following Jesus does not make the darkness go away. Instead, it gives you a way to navigate in the darkness. It gives you a way to approach the darkness. Now, sometimes what I have found is that God will literally light the next step for you. And so you're, you're bit in the darkness. You don't know where you're going. You're like, all right, I'm going to take this one step. And then when you do, he illuminates the next step. And you're like, okay, this would be great. Give me about 10 of these so I can see where this road is going. And that way I'll feel better about it. But he doesn't do that oftentimes. He just gives you one step and says, hey, just trust me. Now, sometimes it's not one step. Sometimes you don't know where to go. You just are sitting in the midst of the darkness. But you have this illogical hope. You ever been there? All of a sudden you're like, you know what? I should be like different than I feel. I, just, I feel okay with this. I feel like God's in the midst of this. I've had moments in my life where people are like, man, this is rough. And I'm like, I don't know. I think God's up to something. Like, how could you feel that? And it's like, I don't know. I just feel this peace about it in the midst of that. See, this light gives you a way to navigate the darkness, but it does not take the darkness away. And Christians are often confused by this. As a pastor, I get in lots of these kind of conversations. I follow Jesus. Why is my life not blessed now? Why is everything not great now? Why did the darkness not go away? I, I, I submitted my life. What else do I got to do? And a lot of us, maybe we came to Jesus for that reason. I, I thought that the darkness would be gone once I accepted the light. You ever prayed for something and you didn't see the results you wanted? You know what a lot of people do is they pray for a healing and they think, oh, this is going to be amazing. God's going to heal this person. Uh, everyone's going to have faith in God. It's going to be this incredible testament. And then God doesn't heal the person. I've been there. And you go, God, why, why would you not heal this person? I believe you have the power to. I'm praying, expecting you to do it. It would bring you glory if you would do it. And he doesn't do it. And you live in the darkness. You go, or maybe you prayed for something, going, God, I, I need this job. Uh, if I could just get this job, it would change everything. Please, can I have this job? And you don't get the job. Or your marriage is crumbling and you go, God, I need you to intervene here. I need you to, to bring us back together. I need you to do something supernatural here and your marriage falls apart. And you go, oh. You see, there's this aspect of darkness that we all walk in, even if you claim that you have the light. And a lot of people don't know what to do with that. Like, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Why does everything make sense now? Why do I not just know the path? I'm living in the light. As the author Daniel Taylor says it, Christian faith is believing and committing to living out the core claims of Christianity despite uncertainty. That's the darkness part. You see, if there was no uncertainty, you could say, I just fully live in the light. I know everything I'm supposed to do. But that's not the, the Christian experience. You, you have this uncertainty. You have this doubt. You have this darkness. You go, what's going on here? Why is this not the way I would expect it to work out? And I would even say it goes a step beyond that. Because a lot of times when we look at one another... We judge uh, whether or not we think God is with someone based on how much darkness is in their life, based on the results. Oh, God told you to take a step of faith. How's it working out for you? And we judge whether or not God actually asked them to do that based on the results. See, having the light of Christ is not measured by a void of darkness around you. And a lot of Christians, could, we could just chill everybody out if we would understand this idea. Like, look, it, it is not whether or not God was with you based on how it turned out. Sometimes God can tell you to take a step of faith and you will fall flat on your face if you do it. 
And you may go, oh, I, I thought I heard from him. Maybe you did. Maybe he wanted you to do that. Trust him. And yet so often we measure like, oh, there's some darkness around you. Must not have been God's will. And yet it's a false understanding. You see, this will change the way you see and approach the darkness. It will remove the fear you have. Because you know what? God is, is still going to work. And, and he's never promised to remove the darkness from me. And so you learn how to live in the midst of the darkness because you have a different kind of light. Now, in, nine, in verses 9 through 34, you have all this reaction uh, that this guy experiences immediately after the, the healing. But then in verse 35, if you jump down, uh, he reconnects with Jesus. After all the abuse he gets from everybody else, he reconnects. And, and their conversation is interesting once they go back together. Uh, chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. This is the religious leaders. Get out of this. We, we don't even want to talk to you anymore. They threw him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Now, first guys, you may go like, why, why are they acting like they've never met? Like this is a weird conversation. Here's what you have to realize. This is probably the first time this man has ever seen Jesus. Last time he was in front of him, he was a blind man. And he walked away with mud in his eyes and without the ability to see. And now he comes back as a seeing person and he doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He doesn't know who healed him. And so Jesus finds this guy and he begins this conversation with him. And then notice verse 37. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Imagine that this blind man now gets to see the face of Jesus. This guy who had healed him. And now he realizes who it is. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world. So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Going, what? That's weird. Some Pharisees, these religious leaders who were with them, heard him say this. And they asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See, when Jesus begins to teach more about who he is in light of this, I am this light. I make blind men see, and those who claim they can see, I show them to be blind. You're going, this is a weird kind of light. What, what, what's up with this? You see, the light of Christ will either show your path or it will show your pride. There's two radically different reactions that people have to it. And so the blind man literally sees a brand new path before him. He has a, a, a new life ahead of him that he did not have before. But for the religious leaders, it does not offer them the same liberation. They're not walking away going, wow, isn't he amazing? It is showing their pride. They're going, how dare you say that about us? How dare you make these claims about us? You see, the light of Jesus will force you to make a choice. And it will show your path. Or it will show your, your pride. I'm amazed how often we often talk about Jesus. We, we, we tend to talk about him, the language we use. is like he's this little, you know, cute doll on a shelf. And, and he's just like this pitiful little doll. And he's going, please choose me. Please accept me. I want to be in your heart. You know, please, if you would let me. And we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I'll get around to you when I have a, a chance. And that's just not what you find biblically. That's not the kind of God he is. You see, Jesus is that type of person where you will make a choice in response to him. Now some of you are going, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm just here, I'm, I'm checking this whole thing out. That's awesome, we're so glad you're here. But you have already made a choice in response to Jesus. You may not realize it, you may not realize your choice, but, but all of us have. That's what he does. He forces you 
to make a choice. And so we might think, well, I'm going to get around to him when I want, and, and I might let him into my heart, I might not. That's not how this works when you understand that he is the light of the world. Each of us chooses the response that we have to this light. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine you go see a movie, and you see it in the middle of the day. And so you're going to the movie, and, and you go out the door directly out of the, of the theater. And so you've been in this movie for a couple hours in the darkness. You open that door, and sunlight hits your face. And you're like, whoa, ever had that moment? You're like, this is so bright. My eyes aren't adjusted to it. And so you have that moment where it's like you can't see anything, and it hurts, and you're, you know, you're covering your eyes because it's like, wow, my eyes have been adjusted to this. And, and then you have to adjust. So you're out there for a few moments, and, and maybe after a few minutes, your eyes get used to the sunlight, and then you can see, and you're like, okay, this is fine. But imagine after your eyes have adjusted, you realize you forgot something in the theater. And it's like, oh, hold on, guys, let me run back in and get it. If you run back in there, you will have an incredibly difficult time finding it. Why? Because your eyes are now adjusted to the light. They can't see in the darkness. You'll have a very difficult time finding your seat, finding your rogue, and where, where was I? Because your eyes have readjusted to something else. Did you know that this is the, the reason why they suspect pirates wore eye patches? It's your fun fact of the day. Most people think, oh, pirates wore eye patches because they had a scar or they were missing an eye. No, if you study it, the theory is the reason why they wore an eye patch is so that one eye was adjusted to darkness, one eye was adjusted to light. So if a captain had to go from up on top of the deck, you know, and there's sunlight, all the way go down, you know, underneath, and there's no light there, he would just flip the eye patch up and his left eye or right eye or whatever would be adjusted to the darkness. You guys want to blow someone's mind at lunch this week? Like, you know about pirates, you know? But why? This is the deal. Your eyes cannot be adjusted to both. You have to choose one. You will choose your response to the light of Christ. Even if you think, I haven't chosen any response. You have. Your eyes can only be adjusted to one thing. And unless you want to go around like a pirate and go, hey, I got some of Jesus. No, no Jesus. Jesus. You know, like, it, it doesn't work like that, right? Like, you have to figure out what will your eyes be adjusted to. And the sun is so interesting in this. And we all understand the sun and, you know, when it comes to light. But the, the, the very same sun that illuminates everything. We go, oh, the sun is amazing. It also blinds us, dehydrates us, and kills us if we get too much of it. Right? I know this because I'm from Arizona. Okay? I, I can speak as an authority on the sun. I've experienced a lot of it. And, and yet out here, I, it's so funny to me how often people are like, oh, the sun. We just want more of the sun. And I'm like, you need to go spend some time in Arizona because you wouldn't have this feeling about the sun. Here's what, a funny thing. When I moved here, I had so many people recommend a supplement that I should take. Any guesses as to the supplement? Vitamin D. Vitamin D. You're the people that told me, right? <laughs> you got to take vitamin D. Otherwise, you're going to get depressed and it's going to be bad and we don't want that. So take your vitamin D. I mean, literally, dozens of you told me, you got to take vitamin D. Here's the irony. I was already on vitamin D. And you're going, why would you be on vitamin D if you're from Arizona? Because the sun will kill you in Arizona. Nobody wants to go play in the sun in Arizona, right? Because I understand when you have that much of the sun, it hurts. And so we didn't go play outside when it's 120 degrees. We were inside and I had to take vitamin D as a supplement for the same reason that you have to take it here. Because you don't get a lot of exposure to it in the right way. As I was thinking about the sun, I was like, you know what, it's interesting. Paradoxically, the sun creates shadows. Now, if you think about shadows, you go, well, you can't have a shadow without light. Like, you have to have that. But it's not really the fault of the light that you have the shadow. But, but yet there's this, this weird relationship to it. And that's how you get shadows. You get the sun and you go out and you have these shadows. 
You know what I realized is there's a radically different strategy when it comes to parking, depending on which state you live in. If you're in Arizona, uh, and this is the way I, I grew up without even realizing it, you look for a parking space based on shade. So you will drive as far back into a parking lot as you can if there is a tree providing shade. Because by the time you get back to your car, it will be worth it if your car has some shade. And so even today, when I'm here, I still out of habit drive into a parking lot and I'm looking for shade, which a lot of times is hard to find here. But I can't help it because it's like that's just what I was raised with. Like you look for a shady parking spot. But here, that's not the strategy. You're not looking for shade. You're thinking, all right, if it's pouring rain, uh, how cute is my outfit and how long do I have to walk? You know what I mean? Like, I, I got to figure this out. Like, I don't, you know. And so you're like, is my hair going to be destroyed by the time I get from this spot to that spot? Like, that is how you're planning it. It's a totally different way because we adjust to whatever we have. And here's what I found. As someone who's from Arizona originally, um, if you have a lot of sunlight, you start finding ways to minimize it. Because it's too much. You start looking for shade. You crave the shade. You need uh, relief. And here's what I found, that sometimes we do this with God. In fact, a lot of times when we have the light of Christ, when you see something about God, you go, oh, I don't know what to do with that. You begin looking for shade. You begin to go, ah, can I minimize that? Can I decrease that a little bit? Now, I want to share an example of this that I found this week. And, yeah, I need to set up this example before I show you. Uh, I came across a tweet uh, from a Christian leader uh, that gets a little bit political. Now, here's what I've, I found. Uh, if, if I, as a preacher, preach the Bible and I keep it to biblical times, I don't get any emails. I don't get any complaints. Everyone's like, that was such a great sermon. The moment I bring the Bible into real life, like here and now, people start getting angry. How dare you claim? Here's the reality. Um, if you want to just read the Bible like an ancient document, I think you're missing the point. The Bible will affect how you behave and how you think today. And this is where it gets a little dicey. So I want to show you a tweet from a Christian leader. This is not a politician, but it's a Christian leader's logic on how things should work. Now, what you'll notice is I'm going to not use the name because uh, if I said the name, most of you would know exactly who I'm talking about. My point is not to uh, disparage this person, but to show a flaw in the argument. As Christians, we should be able to go, how, is the, how should we approach this subject? How should we think? What's the proper way of doing it? I would suggest to you that this is an example of someone who has seen the sun and is looking for ways to minimize it because it's too much. Okay, now everyone's like, what on earth are you about to show? Ready? So it's not that bad. So here's a tweet. Conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters. Okay, not said by a senator or a politician. This is a prominent Christian leader in America making this claim. I, I just want to point this claim out, okay? So what he's saying is there might be a person who is an amazing Christian leader who is a nice guy. But his argument is, don't elect that person because they have no idea how the real world works. You need to elect street fighters. Okay, now, we might go, okay, Jesus is going to train up Christians who are nice guys, according to this person. Um, who's going to train up street fighters? Well, I'm going to suggest it's not going to be Jesus that's going to teach you how to be a street fighter. So we want people who are actually making decisions who aren't following Jesus, because that will produce a better result than the people who are following Jesus. You understand the logic here? And this is to me, I'm going, this is a problem. Because we're, we are separating Jesus from reality. Hey, we, yeah, he's great, and he might turn you into a really nice person. He might be a great Christian leader. But you'll have no idea how to lead in the real world when we really need you. 
and there's a fault in this logic. It's almost like he's saying, hey, this type of darkness in the real world, it's just too much for that kind of light. That kind of light can't really handle this level of darkness. And friends, I would tell you, this is an example of making the gospel bad news. Because if you follow this, you're going, oh, I thought Jesus was like the savior of the world. I didn't realize like his ideas don't actually work. I didn't realize like his ideas are just cute things to read about. And this is what this argument presents. I think of something that the pastor and author Brian Zan says. While we believe in Jesus as savior of the private soul, we remain largely unconvinced about his ideas for saving the world. That's cute when we go to church, we'll talk about Jesus being the light. But don't expect me to live with that light in the midst of the real darkness around me. You begin to realize, oh, this has profound implications if we see Jesus in this way, if we understand who he is. See, your eyes will either be adjusted to the light of Christ or you will find ways to minimize it. You will start looking for the shade. You're going, nah, this is not going to work. i got to find ways around it. And then as I stared at this, ironically, here's what I realized. It is often those with more light that try to minimize it the most. And this is probably the scariest realization that I can share with you today. It is often those with more light that try to minimize it the most. It's often those who live in Arizona that are looking for the shade. Why? Because they have more light. They have to find it. They crave the shade. It's the religious leaders in John 9 who are minimizing, who Jesus says, you are blind. They're going, no, I can see everything. I've experienced God. I know who God is. And Jesus says, no, you don't. It's the blind man who's never seen that is able to see. And today it could be the Christians who know the most about God, who know their Bible the best, who have walked with Jesus the longest, who can actually end up minimizing the light the most. And that, if you're a Christian, that should cause you pause to go, what am I doing? Am I that? Am I that person that has seen so much light that I choose to minimize it? So the question I'd have for all of us is, what is our response to this light? Again, Jesus is not like a take him or leave him type of guy. You will respond to him in one way or another. What is your response? And have you responded accordingly if you've experienced a lot more of his light than others? Or in reality, have you found ways to minimize it? Have you found ways to live in the shade to make sense for yourself? There was a student in the Philippines who was walking out uh, one night and she noticed a homeless boy. And this homeless boy uh, uh, was doing his homework out in the middle of the street. And she found him next to the light of a McDonald's doing his homework. This is a third grader. Uh, his name is Daniel Cabrera. He and his mom live in a food stall because their house burnt down. So he has no light to go home to. So every night he brings his little makeshift desk and his one pencil and he works next to this McDonald's because that provides him enough light to see his homework. And the student walking by noticed this and went, what a profound response to the light. So she shared this and uh, this picture went viral and uh, politicians in the Philippines and people around the world wanted to support this guy, wanted to encourage him and, and make sure he had school, make sure he had resources. And as I stared at that, I went, how come it's someone who has so little light that appreciates it the most? How, how come it's not those of us that have seen a lot? Go, oh, I have so much light. I want to do something with it. If you understand what Jesus is saying here in John 9, it should cause all of us to do a gut check and go, what are we actually doing with the light? Are we like little Daniel, this little third grade boy who has learned to appreciate the sparse, the sparse light that he has around him? 
Lord, we have so much light. We've had so much experience that we have created habits of finding shade. I want to close with something that C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, as we wrestle with this idea of you being the light, it should cause us to do a little bit of a gut check as we consider our own response to it. That when your light came, it was the blind men who could see you and the religious leaders who couldn't. And sometimes it's those of us that should know better and should know the most and should be following you the most that actually end up trying to minimize this light the most. And so we just pray as a church, you would teach us to have a response to your light like a little third grader does who understands how precious a resource this is, who has learned to see the value of a simple light. And we consider who you are. May we realize that you're not promising us a life of no darkness, but that in the midst of the darkness, we will have a different way to live, a different way to respond. We can have a confidence moving forward out into the world, out into the darkness around us, because we have seen the light. But may we not be those who minimize it, who find shade, who find ways to make it convenient to us when those ideas affect our real world. But may we believe that you truly are the light of the world. And in the midst of the darkness, you are the hope we are all craving for. You are the only sense of direction we will find in the midst of this world. Jesus, may you fill us with your light. May we be the people who embrace it, who learn to adjust our eyes every day to what your light is showing us. And may you guide us forward in a new direction. We pray in Jesus' name.